Well, good morning. I'm sure nobody fell in this category, but I was half paying attention to what Kelly was saying, which, and so not really paying attention, but then I heard something that confused me, and so I'm going to clarify for myself and the one or two other of you who didn't listen perfectly clearly. Women can serve in every volunteer role except for the activities, which is a very specific thing. So ladies of the church, you're not off the hook for Pacham. We would love for you to join. And uh, Okay, just to get that out of the way. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24, if you would. If you don't have a Bible, uh, come talk to me. I'll give you one. Uh, but we have it printed for you in your bulletin there. Genesis chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through... Uh, we're going to read through verse 28. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the, older of, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell." But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the woman, women would come out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today, and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out from her, with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man ga gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord prospered his journey. And shekels, and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. 
She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder, room to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice and thank you for the privilege of gathering here together to hear of your mighty deeds and to hear your gospel proclaimed and to see Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, we couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us, and so we rejoice and thank you that you have, both in all of creation, but savingly in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, of whom these scriptures speak. Lord, would your Holy Spirit, who breathed out this scripture, be among us, speak through me and in the hearts of all of us, that we might see and treasure Christ our Lord, our only hope in life and death. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, we're coming to the end of our time with Abraham. This is our seventh sermon on Abraham, and it will be our last. He's going to die sometime this week. He may have died in this passage. It's not actually totally clear, but his death will be recorded at the beginning of Genesis chapter 25. And we transition into the life of Isaac and quickly into the life of Jacob. And the drama of the rest of Genesis is going to be around Jacob and his family. Our story in Genesis 24 serves as something of a conclusion to the life of Abraham. And that's how I want us to read it today. We have seen his life from being called out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, now to facing death. And in this scene in Genesis chapter 24, I want to suggest and show us the tone and tenor of Abraham's faith and of God's interaction with Abraham takes on a new quality. This is the mature Abraham in faith, and this is God working through ordinary providence in the life of his faithful servant, which is a marked difference from where we have been in many ways. This sermon is something of a sequel to last week's when Kelly looked at Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac, this massively important event in the life of Abraham and in the life of the whole Bible, in some ways the climax of Genesis, where God provides a ram in the thicket that stands in the place of Isaac and allows Isaac to live. It's also going to give us an opportunity to review the life of Abraham as we close it out. And so here's our outline as we go this morning. First, God and Abraham before the ram. Second, God and Abraham after the ram. And third, God and the Christian. So before the ram, that's a reference to last week. After the ram, which is this week. And then you and me as Christians and what we can learn from this text. Okay, so first, I'm going to take this opportunity to review where we've been since living and that God is going to show him a land, and he's going to make him a nation, and he's going to bless him. And those promises are repeated again and again in the subsequent chapters. And Abraham is faced with a decision whether or not to trust the Lord and to call on the Lord as his Lord, as his suzerain, as his, his benefactor. And we, looked at, we saw that in the story of Melchizedek, where Abraham comes back from rescuing Lot, and he has the choice of whether or not the king of Sodom is going to make him wealthy, or if God is going to make him wealthy, and he chooses the Lord. God makes these promises, because I said so, 
And to show you that, I'm going to take a son. Now in Genesis 16, Sarah's old, and Abraham and Sarah look at each other and say, well, maybe God said a son, but maybe he didn't mean you, so let's talk to Hagar, and we'll figure it out this way. That's not what God intended. God takes care of Hagar and Ishmael, but God says, no, Sarah is going to bear you a son. And he institutes, he is born and he is circumcised. And so God has shown Abraham again and again something very important, which is the lesson of his life and the thing I want us to make sure we remember from the last six weeks, which is this. God makes promises, God keeps promises, and he makes it happen himself. So Abraham, his journey of faith, His maturing into faith is God teaching him again and again, I'm the one who makes the promises and I'm the one who keeps them. I don't actually need you, Abraham, to fulfill the promises for me. And so there are all these events in Abraham's life up to this point that demonstrate vividly for him and for us, the reader, this is clearly God acting. So God takes on human form in the angel of the Lord and comes and speaks audibly to Abraham. He gives him instruction. And then God takes a 90-year-old woman who is barren and past menopause and says, I'm going to make her pregnant and give you a child through Sarah. There's no way to look at Abraham's life up to now without saying God does miraculous things and he's the one fulfilling these promises. That leads us to Genesis 22, which is where we were last week, and to this very surprising instruction from God to take Isaac and to sacrifice him, to kill him. You've got to realize, Abraham has trusted God to produce a, a line, right? Because you've got to be a nation. That's not going to happen unless he has a son. He finally got a son, and now God's telling him, go and sacrifice and kill him. And What's so remarkable about Genesis chapter 22 is that he does it. He binds Isaac. He leads him up the mountain. And in in Hebrews 11, verses 17 to 19, we, we hear this authoritative interpretation of Abraham's faith, where we read, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He who had received the promises and was in the act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then verse 19 of Hebrews 11 is key here. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so we have this final test of Abraham's faith in Genesis 22, where God tells him to do something that is clearly not going to make the promise happen, right? And he believes, because he has learned that God can be faithful and God will make it happen. That's the, that's the school that Abraham has been to and that we have been to as we've been reading through his life. His faith has matured. And what we find is that God does, right? He provides the ram in the thicket, the substitute for Isaac. Isaac is preserved and the line continues. Abraham's faith has grown. God has been teaching Abraham to trust in him. And at the end of Genesis 22, we see that faith in display. Okay, I want to pause here and just observe something for all of us in this room, especially for those of us who are getting older. 
I count myself in that group. Notice that Abraham's faith is not a static thing that he has in Genesis 12 and that continues exactly as is for the rest of his life. It develops and grows and matures. And what I want us to see this morning as we think about that reality is that, brothers and sisters, our faith, my faith today, ought not to be the most mature and developed version of my faith for the rest of my life. Lord willing, it is not, and I can testify it is not, the same that it was when I was 28 years old. There's two sides to this reality. The first is a challenge to you and to me, which is to say, do not get a sense of arrival in your faith. Expect that God has more to do in your life to grow you closer to him and develop your faith in greater confidence and trust in him. Do you have that confidence? Do you have that sense that that should be happening? And if it's not, you want to see why and pray to God that he would. You are not finished. God isn't done. You haven't arrived. The second piece of that, though, is an encouragement, which is to say, if you find yourself, at whatever age you are, sometimes struggling with unbelief and doubt, needing and seeing in yourself the need to grow in greater faithfulness to God, that's okay. You're where you need to be. God has you there on purpose, and he's not finished with you, all right? Abraham is quite literally the paradigm of faith in the New Testament. You read Romans and want to say, how are we saved by faith? Paul says, look at Abraham. But notice this, guys. Genesis 12 is where Abraham believes and it is counted to him as righteousness, which Paul says is justification by faith. Right? Abraham is saved, to use our evangelical language, in Genesis 12. And then he goes on to make a ton of boneheaded decisions for the rest of his life. The faith that justifies Abraham, that connects him to God and the grace of Jesus Christ ultimately, is not a finished work. Y'all see that? And so you and I, as we find ourselves in the middle of our own journey of faith, sometimes being boneheads and making really dumb decisions, hopefully not prostituting out your wife and finding a, a concubine to, to make a baby. But if you do, God's not done with you, okay? So there's encouragement here. God was not done with Abraham in Genesis 12. I just want to observe that. All right, back to Genesis 22 and now to Genesis 24. And our second point, God and Abraham after the ram. The lead up to the ram, I want to suggest, is Abraham's school in faith. And he offering this Isaac as a sacrifice and trusting that God will show up and make it work is this paradigmatic moment of Abraham's mature faith. But now he's on the other side of that. Read Genesis 24 that he was learning before. He's on the other side of the ram being provided. Y'all see that? And then God, in his acting in this story, is acting through providence in kind of an ordinary and subtle way that we'll talk about in a minute. God doesn't teleport Rebecca to the, the carriage of uh, the servant and say, here she is. 
No, God, God's working through a lot of decisions and contingencies, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And so the relationship between God and Abraham in Genesis 24 looks a little different. So let's look at how it operates. And what I want us to see is first Abraham's faith. Some context here for our story. Uh, two pieces that are potentially questions in your mind. The first is that we live in a time of arranged marriages at this point. Uh, you may think that's a terrible idea. You might think that's a great idea. I went from thinking it was a terrible idea as a child to now think it's a great idea as a father. Um, <laughs> perhaps you are, perhaps you are the same. I don't care what you think about arranged marriages. That's the fact of the of the on the ground here in Genesis 24. The second thing is that the servant who is being sent is Abraham's top guy who's in charge of his household. And so he goes with the authority of Abraham. Abraham is apparently, we don't know why Abraham sent him, but it seems that he's sick and old and can't go. And so he sends his servant in his stead. Now, as we look at the actions of Abraham and the servant, I want us to see four quick things, four elements of Abraham's mature faith and action here at the end of his life. They are these, obedience, confidence, prayerful wisdom, and thanksgiving. Obedience, confidence, prayerful wisdom, and thanksgiving. And one thing I should note, too, before we jump into these, these elements, is exactly the same sort of crisis for Abraham that sacrificing Isaac was and that the birth of Isaac was. All right? For God's promises to come true, that there would be a nation that would come out of, out of Abraham, got to have a son, he can't die, and then he needs to get married and have babies, okay? So we've passed the first two, but we don't have, we don't have a wife and babies yet. So, so we're in a very similar mode as Abraham thinks about this, but, but that's where I want to see his maturity in approaching it. Obedience, confidence, prayerful wisdom, and thanksgiving. All right, first is obedience. Look at what, the, look at what Abraham makes the servant promise not to do. Okay? There's two things. He says, do not do this. Thing number one, do not take a Canaanite wife for my son. That's verse three. Can't, I, want, I do not want him to marry one of these folks around here who do not call on the Lord. And the second thing is that he promises him, promise not to take Isaac out of the promised land. Y'all see that? Verse six, don't do it. And in these two promises that Abraham makes the servant make and these two commitments that Abraham is making, we see two elements of obedience that are fundamental to the life of Israel starting here and continuing for the rest of the Old Testament. Those two things are, first, they need to stay in the land, and that's going to prove difficult. And second, they need to stay holy while they're in the land. That too is going to prove difficult. We're going to see this in the life of Jacob. Jacob himself is not going to be like his grandfather. He's going to go back to Laban's house, right? And it's going to be a whole thing. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks, right? He has to then get back into the promised land, which is a challenge, right? And then we're going to see that Jacob's son, Joseph, is sold into slavery by his brothers, which is a great story. And the whole family of Israel ends up leaving leaving Israel right, to go to Egypt for hundreds of years, and then has to be brought back into the promised land. And when they get there, what is their main challenge going to be? It's not to intermingle and lose their religion with the Canaanites who surround them. And intermarriage was one piece of that. 
and then ultimately under threat of exile, which is going to happen. And so staying in the land and staying holy in the land, these are the things that the people of Israel are called to do. And Abraham, in his setting up this plan, is faithful to those two things. I want us to see that, okay? Second, we see Abraham's confidence. The servant hears Abraham's plan and he has some questions. He's not sure this is going to work. And look at verse 7. Abraham says this, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land, he will send an angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham approaches this situation with a confidence that is won by all that we have read in the last six weeks. Y'all see that? He just, he just saw the ram in the thicket, at least as Genesis is telling the story probably been a few years. The ram in the thicket, to him, is the grounding on which he can then say, God's going to provide Isaac a wife. He is confident. His faith has been developed. Just as God provided the ram, he will provide a wife. So he's confident. He's obedient. The third thing, then, we see is the servant's prayerful wisdom. Now, what I want us, as we're thinking about this passage, I want us to see the servant and Abraham's faith together as one, I think that's legitimate because the servant would have learned his faith from Abraham. And he's there on behalf of Abraham. And so the servant's actions are reflective of Abraham's own faith and what has been developed. So what does the servant do when he shows up? He gets to the city. All he knows is he's supposed to go there and find Isaac a wife. Well, he comes up with a plan. And then he prays to God about it. And that plan ends up being a very wise plan. And so he exercises both wisdom and prayer. And those two... He prays to God, asking for success, and then he he sets this thing up. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink and I'll water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. Okay. We need to be thoughtful here about what's going on. There are examples in the Old Testament, which are legitimate in their time, of people using different tests to determine the will of God. Think about Gideon and the fleece. We think about the uh, Urim and the Thummim, whatever they are, the two things on the breastplate of the the high priest. We we think about drawing lots. Um, And that happens sometimes in the Old Testament. We can talk about why and how and how that relates to us some other time. But here, that's not really what's going on. Ian Duguid, who's an Old Testament scholar, points out really helpfully that, yes, there is a test of God's will here, but it's a test that's attached to a very wise plan for finding a wife, right? So what, what the servant is out to do, he's out to find a virtuous woman who will make a good wife for his master's son, Isaac. What does he ask God to show? What's he going to be looking for? He's going to be looking for someone who's going to agree to offer him water when he asks for it. That's not a given, but hopefully most people are nice enough to do that, right? But then the second thing he asks for is the thing that is wild, okay? He's got 10 camels over here who are thirsty. They've been walking. And so he asks God, I want this woman to not just offer me a drink, but say, I'm going to water your camels also. Y'all have seen a camel in your life? Do you think that camels drink a lot or a little when they, when they go to drink? They drink a lot. They drink a lot. Um, 
there are different numbers out there. I'm going to use the lowest that I've seen. Uh, 25 gallons in a single sitting. That's the lowest, that's the low end of what a camel would be drinking. Okay? So there's 10 of them. 10 times 25 equals 250 gallons. All right. Do you know how much the little jar that, uh, that sweet Rebecca had has? Maybe five gallons, maybe less. So we'll go with the, the highest number. So she's got to make, if I'm doing my math right, 20 trips? No, 50 trips. Come on, man. 50 trips. Do y'all see that? So she's got to lug a five-gallon jar back and forth to the well 50 times to do what, what the servant set up for her task. That's not an ordinary act of hospitality, right? And so what the servant is setting up is a way in which to determine a woman in this place who would make a good wife for his master's son. He's looking for virtue. He's looking for servant-heartedness. To use a term that, would, that is appropriate now, he's looking for Christ-likeness. Okay, an aside for a moment on dating. We don't have a lot of guidance about dating in the Bible because they weren't dating, right? They were arranged marriages, which is unfortunate for those of us in this room who are looking for spouses because we look to the Bible in vain uh, to find much advice. Now, why? Well, because there wasn't a lot of agency in the choice, and so y'all have agency in choosing your spouse. Hopefully, maybe not. Maybe it feels like you don't, and that's hard, and I know that. But to the extent you do have agency, what am I supposed to look for? Well, this is actually a really helpful story that you can think about in this context. The servant, in a sense, is dating for his master's son who's back, you know, hundreds of miles away. Um, And what's he looking for? He's looking for virtue. He's looking for Christ-likeness. He's looking for servant-heartedness. And notice two young men and women in this room. Um, Turns out Rebecca's beautiful, it appears, right? But that's not on the list, all right? So if your list starts with attractive and then down the road gets to nice person, hopefully, to me, that's not not where we want to go with this, all right? End of dating lesson, but okay? Think about it. Look for character. Develop your own character. Not end of dating lesson. If you want to find a spouse, those of you who are looking for spouses out there, um, look for someone with character and then develop that in yourself because you want to find somebody with that character who's also looking for that character, which you need to be, okay? There's, there's my dating advice um, for the group. All right. So it's not an arbitrary trust of God's will. It's a wise plan, and he offers it to God in prayer. So he's obedient, he's confident, and then he offers it to God in prayer after being wise about how he does it. And before he's done even praying... The scriptures tell us Rebecca shows up. That's not there by accident in verse 15. Before he even finished speaking, Rebecca walks up. And when, when Rebecca shows up and, he meets, and she meets the criteria, and that whole part of the story is remarkable, and it gets even more interesting as they go back to Laban's house, um, which is a foreshadowing of Jacob we'll talk about another time. Um, the servant's response, and this is the fourth element I want us to see, is one of thanksgiving. And it is the final response of mature faithfulness in these situations. Verse 26 and 27, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. He made a plan. It was a good plan. He prayed to God about it, and then it worked out. And at the end of that, God, the servant praises God, worships him, and thanks him for the provision in his life. 
That's faithfulness, okay? Obedience, confidence, prayerful wisdom, thanksgiving. But where's God in this story? Where's God in this story? He's, there's not a theophany. There's not an angel of the Lord. There's not an audible voice from heaven. There's not a ram in a thicket, right? This feels like a very ordinary interaction. If you're going to go try to find a wife in an ancient city, this decent place to go do it. You found wives at wells. That's just the way it worked. But God is there, just not so dramatically as he has been in the life of Abraham. He's working not through miraculous intervention or theophany. He's working through the ordinary. He's working through these thousands of decisions that went into this particular encounter at this particular moment in time. Think about all the contingencies, all the human decisions that went into Rebecca showing up at the same time that the servant is there. I mean, think even about, like, Rebecca, this is, I, this is new to this sermon, but it just occurred to me. That's usually not a good introduction to saying something, right? <laughs> you and I, right, there are some days where you've asked me to do something hard, I'll do it nicely, and there's some days where I'm hungry or I'm tired, I don't feel good, I'm not going to do it, right? So it happened to be the day, it is a good day for Rebecca when she showed up at the well, she was in a good mood, and she was willing to spend maybe an hour or so dragging water across for the camels, God here is in this story, but he's not working in the same kind of way that we've seen him working in the life of Abraham. He's working through providence. That's a term we should know. Providence is distinct from God's miraculous acting, where providence is his governing of all things, including this very moment right now. This mysterious way in which God, in his power, is the Lord over and sovereign over everything that happens including Rebecca getting a nice breakfast that morning and leaving at the right time and showing up in that place where the servant would be. God governs all things. He is in control. And this mode of God's acting in Genesis 24, in some ways, is the mirror to the maturity of Abraham's faith. Y'all see that? So God had to get in Abraham's face again and again in 12 through 22 to say, it's not, you're not doing it, Abraham. I'm doing it. But here, Abraham has a sensible plan, and he does it, and he's confident in God, and then God works through ordinary providence. That's actually, we'll talk about it in a second, that's a, that's a step up in some ways for Abraham and his faith. This is mature faith in action in the ordinary life, the ordinary way in which God is working out his promises. Okay. Okay, God and you, what do we do with this story? Um, as we consider what we can learn from this text, I want to suggest that Genesis 24 is uniquely helpful for us as Christians today. That the pattern of God's relationship with Abraham and of Abraham and the servant's faith towards God is thus far in our reading of the book of Genesis the one that is most easily applicable and most similar to our life in this world today. God is currently not usually bringing forth children from the womb of 90-year-olds, right? He's not currently appearing in human form. He's not currently speaking audibly to you and to me or showing up in angelic form. And he's not usually providing rams and thickets after commanding us to go kill our kid. 
But that's what we've been reading about. And one of the questions that we can have in reading the Old Testament and reading these mighty deeds of God is where does that leave me? My life doesn't look like Abraham's life. I can be both, we can be insecure and confused about that reality. But what I want to see in Genesis 24, what I want y'all to see in Genesis 24, is that we see here the ordinary work of faith and the ordinary work of providence, which is mostly normative for our lives today. Still God working, even though he doesn't show up in these dynamic and dramatic ways in Genesis 24, he is still very much at work, still appropriate to pray to him and to thank him. God did this, even though they made a wise plan. And the second thing I want us to see is that it's a privilege to be in this place. It's a privilege to live in the time of ordinary faithfulness and the ordinary providence of God. And here's why. We need to recognize that like Abraham in Genesis 24, the issue is not that God isn't doing these things. Miraculous births, theophanies, taking on human form, doing miracles, providing rams, speaking audibly. The issue isn't that he's not doing these things now. The reality is that he's done these things. Abraham in Genesis 24 is on the other side of all these things. He is faithful after the ram has been provided and his faith has been matured in this dynamic action of God. And he's resting in that. And brothers and sisters, you and I live in this age after Christ's appearance in that exactly same situation. There has been a miraculous birth. 2,000 years ago, a virgin gave birth. And God has taken human form because that child that was born was God himself who took on flesh. And God has spoken audibly through Jesus Christ And in this word which you have, and God has provided a substitutionary ram, but he's provided the better ram, which is Christ himself. We all, brothers and sisters, live on the other side of Genesis 22. Our faith, like Abraham's in this story, is the mature faith of those who can look back on the dramatic faithfulness of God. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to live in the time that we live after the better ram. I could conclude every sermon by reading from Romans 8, but I am going to do that today because I have to ration myself. So this is my one for the month. Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined those to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is in control, Paul says, working all things for the good of those who love him. And then he says in verse 31 of Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That right there, guys, and that's a familiar verse to those of you who've been in the church, that's it. 
That's life after the ram. Abraham could have said something very similar. God who provided a ram in a thicket, he's going to provide for Isaac to have a wife. Brothers and sisters, God has provided Christ Jesus. You can trust in him. And he is working through his ordinary providence in a thousand ways. And it's mysterious and you can't understand it. And yet his promises are true. Be faithful. Be obedient. Be confident. Seek wisdom Offer it to God in prayer and then thank him when he shows up. And if you want to know how and why you can do that, look to Jesus Christ, the ram of God who was offered for us, who showed up miraculously. This is our confidence. Oh, that we would walk in it. Oh, that we would walk in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us to walk in the confidence of our faith, that we would see Christ Jesus Not just the ram who was provided, but the one who was raised from the dead and is even now seated at your right hand, who will return to make all things new, and if we are in him, we will be new with him. Father, would you fill us with that confidence and help us to walk through our life in this seemingly ordinary world, knowing that there is extraordinary providence in every moment and that you care for us, and that your promises are true. Encourage us in that, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.